Science Chatters. Hello and welcome to Science Chatters, the podcast where we chat about science and science communication from the Science Communication Unit at UE Bristol. I'm Andrew Glester and with me today are... Dr Emma Whitekemp, I'm co-director of the Science Communication Unit with... Dr Claire Wilkinson, I'm co-director of the Science Communication Unit with Emma. So I think we're going to be exploring the ways in which you communicate science and we'll be involving students uh, as interviewers. I think it's also a chance for us to find out more about some of the things that our students are getting up to, some of the work that they're producing, but also some of the fantastic research that's happening on our doorstep. And um, apart from at an occasional meeting or over coffee, we maybe don't even know some of the great research that's happening here at UE. Coming up in this first episode, we have an interview with Dr Stephanie Sargent, who's a senior lecturer in environmental science here at UE, uh, who's just back, recently back, from the Arctic on a cruise ship, but a science cruise ship. (laughs) Uh, She'll be talking to Emma Brisdian, who's one of the MSc in science communication students here, and we'll hear from Annie Moyer, who recently finished the Masters in Wildlife Filmmaking here and has won a prestigious award at the Jackson Hole Festival, one of the most celebrated wildlife filmmaking festivals that there is. And she'll be talking to Priya Payment, one of the wildlife conservation students at UE Bristol as well. I mean, probably most people who are listening will know the answer to this question, and I probably should as well, but... What is science communication? Oh. Yes, well, I'm not sure anybody really knows the answer <laughs> to that question. From from the perspective of um, the Science Communication Unit, we explore the wide range of ways in which scientists and um, other people communicate about science, talk about science, uh, present science, but also the ways in which the public might become involved with science. So we look broadly across both one-way and two-way communication approaches to um, to engage the public with key issues of our day. And we also operate with a really wide definition of science in our work. So some of the work that we're looking at may be social sciences, it might be humanities, it might be environmental, health-based. Uh, we sometimes have conversations if it should be research communication. So we do have quite a w- wide remit of things that we're interested in and we hope that that will be reflected on the podcast as well. Mm. And there's other units like the Wildlife Filmmaking Unit, which is not based at this campus, because we're at the French campus. And Wildlife Filmmaking, um, they're not actually a research centre in the same way that we are. So they're a programme, an MA, uh, that's offered in one of the other faculties. So they're down at Bar Ashton, I believe. And we also have a range of researchers based in the city centre at the Arnolfini, over at Glenside, huge teams of people working on health research. So there's lots of different areas of research around the city. And we'll hear from one of the students, as I say, Annie Moyev, who did the MA in Wildlife Filmmaking later in the podcast. But first, we go to the Arctic with Emma Brisdian, who is one of the students on the MSc in Science Communication here. Soon to graduate. Soon to graduate, yeah. Don't go, Emma. Stay, (laughs) Stay on the podcast. Who interviewed Dr Stephanie Sargent about her research and a recent trip to the Arctic. So Steph, you're a senior lecturer in environmental science at UWE. Your research, according to your Twitter, uh, (laughs) says that you look at marine microbial nutrient cycling. In a nutshell, what is it? 
<laughs> That's quite a big question to start with. Um, <laughs> so I guess I've always been interested in the large scale cycling processes. So biogeochemistry mm -hmm. is kind of what we call it. So marine biogeochemistry is essentially um, looking at uh, the life, the microscopic life usually in the oceans and how they're involved in nutrient cycling. So nutrients um, are really important, um, fundamental things to uh, the basis of the food chain. Mm -hmm. So phytoplankton, which are essentially marine algae, um, need to photosynthesize. And to do that, they need nitrogen and phosph phosphate, nitrate and phosphate, um, to photosynthesize. Mm -hmm. um, and so they're really key macronutrients that they need uh, to photosynthesize. And basically, um, nutrients aren't um, homogeneous in seawater, so okay. they vary quite a lot. Um, and so we get some areas where we get loads of nutrients and loads of productivity, photosynthesis, um, and lots of marine life um, further up the food web because of that. And then we've also got um, areas, especially open ocean areas, where we get really low nutrients. Um, and there, the whole microbial leap and the primary productivity is completely different. Um, and a lot of these microbes are really well adapted to using um, certain nutrients where others aren't available. So a lot of my early work was looking at methanol as a carbon source okay. um, for marine bacteria. So some marine bacteria can use methanol as a carbon source, um, probably when other sources of carbon um, aren't available to them. Um, so we saw a switch in uh, uptake of methanol in certain right. regions where you've got different nutrient availabilities. Um, and then um, some other stuff looking at trace metal gradients. So um, phytoplankton also need some kind of metals. Uh, a lot of those metals actually get deposited from dust storms. Oh, right, okay. So we did a transect across the North Atlantic looking at um, the uh, gradient change in dusty position. So from the Sahara in the ah. Northeast Atlantic. Um, so it's essentially um, finding out how these microbes are responding to nutrient availability. Um, and if we change that nutrient availability, how do they respond? Mm -hmm. um, and then obviously, so the same kind of stuff in the Arctic looking at, well, if we change the conditions, how do those um, organisms respond um, in terms of their gas production and those kind of things? So it's just trying to find out the big cycling questions okay. um, based on very little organisms. That's quite cool. I like that that kind of juxtaposition. Big questions, really small yeah. samples. Um, so, like you said, you've got different zones which have different um, uh, nutrient availabilities. Uh, with kind of climate change messing slightly with some of our <laughs> ocean currents and temperatures and things, is that having a knock-on effect of, of where the nutrients are appearing or moving to? Yeah, so that's kind of one of the things that we don't know. And there's a lot of other groups working on this. Um, so there is um, some great research out there that's kind of starting to answer this question. Mm -hmm. But at the moment, with a lot of the shifts that we're seeing in currents and ice melt and those kind of things from climate change, we don't actually know how um, things are going to change um, specifically because there are so many different nutrients. So people tend to focus in on um, individual kind of compounds. So someone might be uh, really into methane or nitrous oxide or methanol and like they all that. seem really, really obscure. <laughs> yeah, so like my whole PhD, I'm like, I'm really into methanol. Like <laughs> methanol is the most important compound. And everyone's like, is what? Why? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you'd have to talk um, begin every presentation with like, why should you care about methanol? Why should we care about methanol? Because uh, what's not like to love about methanol? 
it's a really important carbon source. <laughs> <laughs> it's a really important carbon source um, for marine bacteria um, called methylotrophic bacteria. Oh, of course, yes. Sorry, um, I totally forgot. Yeah, did you not realise that? <laughs> um, so yeah, so um, I guess th- I guess the short answer is we don't really know how nutrient concentrations are going to change. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, with different oceanic currents, um, those will be. It will be really interesting to see how those ocean currents change. Um, particularly in regions where we currently don't have a lot of nutrient availability, like these open ocean gyre mm, systems. Okay. Um, and yeah, we'll see. that's one of the questions we're trying to answer, I guess. Very nice. Um, well, we've jumped in quite heavy with the with the deep stuff to start with. <laughs> yeah. but the whole reason we got you in here is because you've just come off of an awesome trip. Tell me more about the Arctic. And this is this is proper Arctic, isn't it? This is this is like a reinforced ice going vessel, icebergs everywhere. Seasickness, I'm imagining. Talk to me about your cruise. Yeah, so... Um, cruise makes it sound like a holiday. Sorry, talk to me about your research <laughs> trip. <laughs> no, so this is actually one of the uh, common uh, issues that I come up against quite a lot, especially being in Bristol, is uh, we... So in the kind of marine community, marine science, we call them uh, ocean cruises. Mm. We go on a cruise. That's what we call them. Lovely we give jumbly. them cruise numbers. Free food. Yeah, exactly. So every <laughs> cruise um, has a cruise number. Um, it's referred to as a cruise in every way. As soon as you leave that kind of marine science community um, and you say, oh, well, I can't do that because I'm actually on a cruise for a month or two. Uh, everyone goes, I'm sorry. Excuse you. <laughs> <laughs> so we have had a lot of conversations about calling them um, marine expeditions. I think expedition sounds a lot more like what you've actually been doing. Yeah, yeah, which sounds really exciting. But then I think if you've been on a couple of cruises, you kind of like, well, it's not, it doesn't really feel like an expedition because it's quite comfortable. And, you know, you've, mm. you've got a bar on board and you've got a gym and you've Very got nice. some food and everything. Um, so but I doubt many people that sign up for a Caribbean cruise expect to be sampling ice cold waters. <laughs> No, in all fairness, probably not. Either. And they also probably expect uh, shows on board and all that kind of no stuff. No shows. No shows. Oh, no. Um, so yeah. So uh, I guess in terms of uh, the trip that I've just done, um, I was really lucky to be invited um, to be part of a project um, that was funded um, by NERC, so the Natural Environmental Research Council. Um, and we were on board um, a bass ship, so um, a British Antarctic survey ship mm-hmm. um, called the James Clark Ross. Nice. Um, it's actually the James Clark Ross's last trip to the Arctic. Oh. Because uh, she's been sold. Oh, crikey. Yeah. Where's so, she going? Uh, well, I'm not actually sure where she's going, but apparently she's already been sold um, and will kind of leave Bass's um, fleet next year. However, she will be replaced by the brand new Sir David Attenborough. Oh, here we go. Yeah, I aka Boaty McBoatface. Lovely, lovely. <laughs> um, so Boaty McBoatface, I think, is going to be an ROV that will she's be never on board. Gonna, she's never going to shake that name, is she? No. Um, <laughs> oh, they're, they're actually calling an ROV Boaty. Oh, brilliant! Yeah. It's not going to waste. No. So one of the ROVs will be Boaty McBoatface. That's fantastic. Yeah. Um, but the main vessel itself, um, she's the Sir David Attenborough or the SDA, um, as the crew call her. So the crew that were on board, the James Clark Ross are the crew that will um, move on to the SDA largely. Nice. Um, yeah, so I was really lucky to be invited um, to help out a team from Plymouth Marine Laboratory um, who are looking at trace gas production in the Arctic and how that potentially might change with climate change. Lovely. Um, so we did a range of experiments looking at um, increasing temperature and um, increasing acidity on the seawater and how that would change 
into the gas production um, by phytoplankton, mm -hmm. mostly focusing in on um, trace gases, which are climatically important. Um, so including greenhouse gases. Yeah. I like that. Yep. Do you like that? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take that. <laughs> I'm not sure if I've made that up. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I haven't. And what, so, which part of the Arctic were you? Am I right in thinking you're up in the Fram Strait around Greenland? Yeah, so we basically, so we um, mobilised um, from Aberdeen. <laughs> it, makes, it makes it sound like a full military operation, but actually it does sound a little bit like a full military operation, oh, to be fair. I've never been involved in a military operation, but I imagine it's kind of similar in I'm a way. I'm parallels. So yeah, so uh, we actually left Aberdeen, um, headed north, um, and we spent most of the month um, around the Fram Strait, so mm -hmm. between um, Greenland and Svalbard. Um, and then we tried to get some really contrasting stations. So um, the Atlantic current actually comes up and around the top of Svalbard, oh. um, which I didn't realise. But yeah. those waters are quite a lot warmer. So they're kind of five, six degrees when we're up there in Toasty. August. Yeah, totally warm. Um, which did feel really warm compared to those kind of more true Arctic waters, um, which are kind of minus one, minus two degrees. Um, which is, yeah, you need quite a few pairs of gloves on for that. A few layers, certainly. Yeah. yeah. Um, so we tried to get some really contrasting stations between the warmer Atlantic current um, and the kind of more true Arctic waters. So we did try and get onto the Greenland shelf a little bit as well. But there was quite a, a high compaction of ice in the Fram Strait compared to, they did this same cruise last year and managed to get a lot further north. Um, oh. But the, um, when you get the wind blowing in a certain direction, you compact all the ice together mm. and get quite thick ice. Um, so we weren't able to go too far north. Makes it a little bit trickier, certainly. Yeah, definitely. Well, they got stuck last year. So um, oh, they, really? they were a little bit uh, cautious of, yeah, of getting imagine. stuck in the ice again. So, yeah. Yeah. Do senior lecturers often get to go to the Arctic? <laughs> I've never been invited, but yeah. <laughs> I think um, Andy went very far north, didn't he? I don't think there are very many um, researchers here at UWE who whose research interest focuses on the Arctic. Uh, so the programme team teaching the environmental science type courses is quite broad in their skills. I mean, you need to have a broad range of skills to teach a programme. So there's not not a particular focus of research interest at UWE on Arctic research. There's an awful lot of people working around the marine environment, though. So the areas that they can end up working in, I've certainly looked at research projects and student work that's been in Bristol Harbour, mm. right through to exotic locations in the Caribbean. So I think there's a really global focus to the work that's happening. So I'm a social scientist by background, so I just find it so interesting. Um, I follow Steph on Twitter. When she was out doing the research, I was really interested to see some of the things that she was tweeting about at the time. But for me as a, a social scientist, it's always just fascinating to me how people kind of mobilise that kind of research trip and I think she referred to it as a kind of marine expedition and military operation and that's what it feels like and as a social scientist I think sometimes I struggle to even have my dictaphone in my pocket so imagining how you plan for that kind of two-month trip whether it's out on a, a ship um, in the Arctic or in a area of Africa that's really difficult to access um, or even just going to some far-flung location um, where maybe you're having to deal with all sorts of different types of situations. To me, that's a really fascinating process. It offers a, an unusual insight into being a scientist. I think we often associate science with lab-based work um, and you know, working with uh, scientific equipment and so forth, but in but in a in a in a building in a physical in a physical space. And I thought that the interview kind of 
opened up a window into uh, a different kind of research, fieldwork research, um, which I've always sort of associated perhaps more with something like anthropology. So the sort of uh, crossover there with ecology and and, uh, and other and other subjects that have um, fieldwork associated with them. So I thought it was quite an interesting window on that. Though personally, the prospect of being on a boat for two months. <laughs> God. I thought um, just in terms of that experience as well, it stands out to me how often I meet people in science communication who are really, really passionate about their science but have decided the lab isn't for them um, for all sorts of reasons. And I just wonder, sometimes in science communication, we're thinking about conveying the method and the process and get pe- getting people more involved in that side of science. And kind of featuring Steph's work in this way seems like a really nice way to shine a light on some of those opportunities and maybe get a few different people involved and connected to the science. While we're on science communication and a podcast, um, do you think podcasts are a good way of doing science communication? I think they provide an opportunity to hear the voice of scientists in a a way that you perhaps don't. um, It's a bit less formal than a lot of other kinds of media. And I think there are people who are more comfortable with audio you know, don't necessarily want to be represented visually or feel uncomfortable in front of a camera. And I think from, from that perspective, it offers a different uh, different way in um, for people who are interested in science communication. I think for listeners as well, um, for me, the real appeal of podcasts is just how they can fit into your everyday life. So be it that you're listening when you're out on a walk with your dog or kind of for a few minutes when you're relaxing in the evening or on your commute, I think that nature that it can really fit in around your own everyday life is probably a bit more accessible for some people who maybe for various reasons aren't going along to other types of science communication venues. I suppose we're sort of preaching to the converted because anybody who's listening to this mm. is a fan of podcasts anyway. But is that's another thing that I always wonder about science communication. Are we just preaching to the converted? Sometimes. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we do. Uh, I think it's quite challenging to reach beyond groups that are already interested in, in science. Um, really through whatever tools you use, but um, that doesn't mean we shouldn't try. And I think there are some really interesting examples of science communication that goes out to unusual places and unusual venues and tries to engage with publics um, in those spaces. And just going back to Steph's interview, um, I'm thinking about some of the historical accounts of science communication and kind of early travel logs and the way that people were interested in some of the new scientific discoveries because people were on these interesting expeditions and um, I wonder again if there's just ways that we can think about communicating in novel formats that might attract people in who who don't necessarily feel that science is for them. Mm. Yeah I, I, I mean it, it leads me on to think about the film that we're um, going to hear about that Annie Boy made as part of her studies here at the university, which went on to win the award at Jackson Hole Festival uh, in the Living Ocean Short category. And it's a film also set in the Arctic, or filmed in the Arctic, which looks at noise pollution in the oceans. And it that's one of the areas, wildlife films, where it seems to me that science communication has developed over the years and it's become less about there was this Jacques Cousteau idea that it's easier to protect what you love and wildlife films were about projecting something beautiful out into the uh, into the public and then people would love it more and want to protect it more and then they'd look after it more 
is the idea. But it seems to me that we've moved now to a to a world of wildlife filmmaking with things like Our Planet and the recent Blue Planet 2 series where the science communication is much more obvious in the films. Or perhaps the advocacy is more obvious in the films. I think whether there is necessarily more obvious science, I think you could argue either way. I think documentaries have presented a range of different styles of communication, uh, really from, well, I suppose from as soon as film starts. And I'm not sure it's necessarily that there is more science communication. I think it's it's more to do with style. It's more to do with what people find engaging and it's to a degree about um, a sort of growing movement towards advocacy which I find quite interesting actually. The Blue Planet 2 plastics pollution phenomenon I I, uh, I think has become a bit of a bandwagon um, not least because Doctor Who featured <laughs> yes. yes it did. <laughs> um, now I think you know I think there is a, a sort of sense in which um, media have always been advocates for certain things um, and the environment has is currently one of those topics where certainly a number of media organisations have sort of, if you like, decided that this is a cause to, to go for um, and why that is, I don't know mm. but I do think it's an interesting movement and I would call it that, I think it is a bit of a movement mm. I think we still need to see some of the longer term impact of the the presence that that's had mm. in sort of popular culture very recently but also it reminds me um of some of the former kind of public health campaigning around things like meningitis where mm. there was a huge amount of focus on testing with a glass potential meningitis systems a few uh, symptoms a few years ago now and actually it meant that some of the researchers working in that area and some of the charities and organizations struggled to get other messages out because that message had taken on such a sort of powerful form um, and I wonder if there's some parallels in some of the current conversations around plastics and blue planet. I do fear it's sort of an easy uh, win than climate change per se to to just say let's clear up the plastic it's, a, it's something that politicians can say that um, the press can say that they're having a role in and you can see it happening more easily than you can with, with climate change and I, I worry that that plastic and planting trees is is not ought the be all and end all of mm. it, and we are going to lose something if we just concentrate too much on those. Yeah, I think there is definitely a risk around around taking some easy wins and losing the bigger picture. And putting the actions back on the individual with those kinds of concerns, and maybe not looking at some of the bigger bigger issues to solve. I like to distract myself by watching films, mm. <laughs> and one of the films that uh, I've particularly enjoyed recently and I'm not alone because as we said it did win an award is Annie Moyer's film A Voice Above Nature and Annie recently met up with Priya Payment wildlife ecology and conservation science student uh, here at UE Bristol to discuss the film and the award. We know that marine ecosystems are under collapse from pollution, overfishing, exploitation but there's another threat that kind of your film touches on, mm. which is underwater noise pollution. Can you expand on this and why you chose to do it? So I did my marine biology degree and 
for my final project, I looked at um, how we can identify patterns and changes in frequency within a humpback um, song and how that might, we can then match it with behaviour and then try and identify a language um, from looking at the subunits of their song. And one really, really, really small part of my dissertation and a bit of research I came across, and it's, it's embarrassing actually because my dissertation 20 pages long or whatever it is, there's only one very small paragraph about noise pollution, um, which is an issue um, that is really early on in the research. Like We know that it um, affects marine mammals and all marine ecosystems, but as I said, it was one small paragraph of this huge um, project about humpback acoustics and it just really shocked me and then when I was doing my masters at also UE um, in wildlife filmmaking um, it seemed the like the, the obvious choice of a topic to do so as I said it affects all marine ecosystems and it comes in lots of different forms um, shipping traffic marine construction sonar um, exploration and looking for like seismic surveys for example looking for oil in the seabed um, and how it affects marine mammals specifically is the fact that just it masks over their sounds just quite as simple as that it's too loud they then can't hear one another but it also interferes with echolocation as well it causes um, brain trauma hearing trauma um, they might not be able to communicate to one another for example as well it's a really complicated issue and I think what's freaky about it is the fact that people don't really think about it because we can't understand it. I loved your, your editing. It was very impactful, especially how you used the sound um, vibrations. Mm -hmm. The cymatics. Yeah, yeah and I don't know, your voiceovers, and then how you just had like the black screen, and then when it got really loud, and like you felt like you were the whales, like you mm -hmm. felt that human connection, made it relatable. Um, so, yeah, I just wanted to... Oh, thank you. Yeah, well, it was, I think I always wanted to go for a very simplistic style. So I, I think I knew from the beginning I never wanted to have the people in it. I was maybe going to have like their hands and them on the boats and stuff, but then that also got dropped. And then to the cymatics, I was really, really fortunate. I met Dan Pollard, who was the composer on my film, or more so sound design, because um, the film doesn't actually have any music, because we were chatting for ages and... 
I said, I want loads of natural sounds. And he was like, I've already filmed, um, I've already recorded the hull of a boat and made a soundscape of that. And I was like, perfect. And then he was like, oh, Annie, I've, d- I've dabbled with this thing called cymatics. It's only ever been used on YouTube for like funky frequencies for music yeah. videos, like a, a sound effect um, or like a visual effect, sorry. Um, he was like, should we give that a try and have it represent the noise pollution? And then the day before we were due to film it, um, he was like, I ran some humpback acoustics through it yesterday and it's pretty mind-blowing. And he, he, we'd, we set it all up and he played it to me and I was literally like, I think my jaw dropped. As it changed, the patterns like ripple across the plate and it moves and, and, the, and the shapes aren't always the same. They come from the left side of the plate and they'll smatter over and then it'll come up from the right and it'll fizz up. And it was like, honestly, it was, we stood there and it looked like we were watching two whales speaking at one point and it looked like a language it, it was it was really mind-blowing and then then we brought the noise pollution in and it just massed over it and yeah. it was like wow like that is you just need those two things those two elements sure. in the film and yeah that makes it yeah it, it really brought it together so I owe, I owe Dan a lot because yeah. his his work is yeah he got a very creative eye a very visual eye considering he's a sound guy mm-hmm. and that's what he wanted and that's what the film needed I think so yeah, it was. I mean, I found it quite hopeful. Hopeful at the end because you say, um, you know, within eighteen hours, the mm-hmm. noise pollution can be completely eradicated from mm-hmm. the ocean. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't. It's nice to end things with hope because a lot of times we get bombarded with. I mean, not like that will happen, but like if we decide just like that, something will. Yeah, it can be completely eradicated. Yeah, because yeah, I think you watch too many films nowadays where at the end of it you're just like I have got no idea where you want me to start with that like yeah. what do I do what can I do noise pollution yeah it's, it's, it's got a hopeful side to the story I think and that 18 hours I think I got that fact from Steve Simpson from his research and the fact that yeah if we were to stop all man-made sound in the ocean right now it would be gone and it would take 18 hours for any trap sound that like gets mm-hmm. you know reverberates yeah. around the ocean basins and stuff that would all dissipate and then it would fall silent which is hopeful it makes yeah. you because plastic pollution is so daunting like we might never get rid of plastic in the oceans you know take thousands of years if we can to clear it up and that is like just it makes you go home and just like want to cry doesn't yeah. it so is this um, something that hasn't had a lot of research or just people aren't acting on what they know um, I think it's just early on in the research, definitely. I, I don't think it's that people aren't acting, because with everything that's going on at the moment, with all the different issues and stuff, I think I think noise pollution finally is getting a bit more attention. I feel like I've been been to a few events recently, like ocean-themed events, marine mammal-themed events, and it is a hot topic that people are talking about. Um, with, you know, the seismic surveys that Trump wants to do off the East Coast... It, that's terrifying um but there are people fighting back in government i know oceana one of the marine conservation organizations they are really focusing their energy on stopping those seismic surveys happening because that would be um i think it's something like six months of exploration where a boat will pull a load of gas guns that fire like the blast down into the ocean floor to map out where the oil is and they would be firing every a few times a minute for six months. And they've got they had like legislation in place that they'd say, if we see a whale within three hundred meters, we'll stop. If we hear whales, um, we'll stop. And that is just like That's a lot of ifs. Yeah, oh and, and also not just that, but 
whales aren't always singing, even if they're there, so you won't hear them. Um, they 300 metres is a load of rubbish because, as the film says, whales can communicate over thousands of miles. So just because they're 300 metres to you doesn't mean those sounds aren't affecting them thousands and thousands of miles away. So I think us understanding how important their communication is is still early on. We know that whales communicate, we know that they sing or they use echolocation to navigate, for example. But I think the real importance of that communication is still, we're still trying to get our heads around it. So, yeah, I don't, I don't know why it's so early on in its research because it makes, it makes so much sense when you think about it. But obviously we don't hear underwater, we don't need to communicate underwater, so we, yeah. it's not something that is immediate to us, I suppose. Well, I think Roger Payne mm-hmm. was the one who discovered um, the singing of whales. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I guess that's quite recent, since mm. 50, 50 yeah. years ago. Yeah, he identified the humpback whale song um, and kind of put meaning to it. Yeah. So yeah, like you said, it, it's really early on, and I think... I don't know. I don't know what it is. I think we're we're still trying to understand how intelligent these animals are. Yeah. You know, we've studied dolphins and orca in aquariums for years, but it's studying whales. And, and Roger Payne says this in one of his books, Among Whales. You can't, if you are, say, a biologist of the great apes. You know, getting access to the apes is really tough, and to be around them enough to understand their behaviours is really hard. It's, it takes people years of work, like their whole lives dedicated to understanding the great apes. But when you consider a whale, you know, there. I think again in his book he says the word whale comes from an old word meaning wheel, in the fact that the fishermen used to just see the arch of its back come up over, and it almost looked like a wheel turning. And that's and that's why and that's all you see. So like filming whales, for example, is so hard because yeah. you're on a choppy boat and the whale just comes up just for a little bit and you just see a very small part of it and unless you're in the water with it. So have you are you doing any projects that are similar to noise pollution or are you kind of branching into different areas right now? I would really like so me and Dan have been talking for a while about doing something with the cymatics, almost like um an installation piece, you know, in, in museums yeah. or in an art gallery or something like we would quite like the idea of a walk-through experience of noise pollution. So you'd go in, you'd hear the whales, and um, be very immersive, and then you'd like you'd move through the experience, and then you'd see the cymatics, and then that would like really show the whales. But then we'd bring in this yeah. like silent killer or not so silent killer. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's really kind that you said the film gave you hope at the end because mm. I think that's that's the main thing. I'm from Leicester, and if you sat with a person one of my well if you sat with any of my family and friends and just banged on and banged on and banged on about to them about being a vegan and um, not using single-use plastic they tell you to sling your hook because you've got to have you've got to try and find a way to talk to people that isn't patronizing that is relatable and that they can actually do something because that's what I thank you for coming I thank you for having me telling us about your your knowledge on whales and cetaceans and noise pollution and the grand picture of it all Mm. thank you for having me (laughs) oh that was great
Uh, you can find Annie's film, A Voice Above Nature, on YouTube, Vimeo, all the usual video places. And if you search for Annie Moyer, that's M-O-I-R, and Voice Above Nature, you should find it easily enough. Uh, it is a wonderful film. So something that Annie said there towards the end of the interview is that we need to give hope to people when we're doing science communication. There's certainly a lot of concern in the climate change arena at the moment that the constant appeals to fear um, to a degree backfire. It's not to say that you don't need to present the the full picture and and the full research, but there is a a concern about the ways in which we use emotion. And and I I think it is a really nice thing to to offer hope and to offer agency as well. I mean, that sort of sense that we could do something which perhaps we don't get with plastic because the problem is just so big that even if you stop now, plastic will be around for Hmm. hundreds, thousands of years. I I thought it was quite refreshing in the interview when Annie talked about that sense of actually there's change that could be made and the pollution stops. And it's quite simple because um, a lot of the images that I grew up with thinking about pollution, a lot of the conversation now around things like plastics, it seems unstoppable. That dam is broken. How do you clean things up? How do you resolve the situation? And I think there's probably still a place for an element of that. But I think the idea that there is something that could be done was quite interesting. Again, I was kind of interested in how you stop some of that. Yes, I I Um, think it's, it's definitely harder than possibly... Yeah. It seems. I mean, you can't. Uh, boats aren't just suddenly going to stop. Yeah, I'm kind of thinking about a fishing community, and yeah. yeah so I, I kind of had some questions about that, but I thought it was it was a really interesting thing to think about. And the other thing I loved about um, the interview was the use of audio, and for me that made me really think from a science communication perspective about immersive experiences. And are we using that enough? Are we thinking about different ways that people can think about science through their senses? Obviously, thinking about it from an ethical and health and safety perspective and making sure that's all covered. Mm. But um, I was just thinking about the way in a kind of face-to-face format, museums, science centres, festival experiences, are there more activities that could draw on different types of sensory experience? And in a hopeful way. And I think that's the other thing about that. It's about creating that emotional connection through sound, through vision, um, you know, through, through through the range of senses. How do you create that emotional connection for the listener, um, which I think she does, does really well. Um, and I think the other thing that she brought up, which was an interesting concept, was this notion of transportation as well. And the fact that you know, when you have an immersive experience like that, you have you have a powerful story, you have a powerful emotional response to a sound that does transport you in some sort of way. And that's really how that impact kind of affects you. Mm, yeah. And amazing that it's been recognised um, yeah. so early on to have an award yeah. of that nature, an international award. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. I, I mean, it is wonderful. I, I've watched it at home where I have a big screen and surround sound and I recommend if you can watch it on in such circumstances is the best thing to do um, or at least with headphones on to really get the, the impact of the of the sound in the film. So I think one of the key messages for me out of this particular interview was the need to find a way to have your communications message both relatable to the audience something that they can kind of grasp and actionable 
those were two really nice points that came out of that interview that we could think about in a science communication context and um, particularly, I think, important in environmental communication. Um, so I did a show once called The Dive Tent, which was about noise pollution in the ocean. And it was about an immersive experience. The way that it worked was we did it in festivals and around the place. We put a tent somewhere that was hidden. And then um, a friend of mine uh, would dress up as a frogman and walk, <laughs> and walk around. Is it in the middle of the summer? <laughs> uh, yes, yes. Oh, no. He's an entertainment chap. And uh, it sort of accost people, go up to people and, and say, would you be interested in a journey to the deepest part of the ocean? And if they said yes to that, then they were the type of people that we would be interested in, in, in taking on the adventure. And at which point they would be given... Um, Virtual reality goggles, um, that, that's in quotes, which would accurately um, <laughs> would accurately recreate what they would see at the bottom of the ocean, which was nothing, because they were wearing sleeping masks, <laughs> as not rather than virtual reality goggles. And then we'd take them on a wild goose chase, walking them round with blindfolded before stepping them into the tent. Right. So from the point where they've met a man dressed as a frogman, and a very silly man at that, dressed as a frogman, to when they sit down in a, in a tent that they don't know that they're in, they've been blindfolded. And the purpose, the whole purpose of that is to take them out of the, the moment that they're in in their lives and just immerse them in the moment that they're in, mm. in the show. And then the audio is an audio journey to the bottom of the Mariana Trench in the company of two scientists who work on acoustics in the ocean and then it's accompanied by real sounds recorded in the Mariana Trench and one of the things that I love about it most is that immersive thing that taking the taking the time to take people out of the moment that they're in in real life and before you do the science communication. Yeah. For me as well I'm really interested there in if it's a more memorable experience for people yeah. because I often think that when you're using your other senses that's when something really sticks in your mind I'm sure there's research around that, but yeah. I just think kind of getting people out of their everyday lives, even if it, you know, be at a festival and they're having quite a social, leisure-based experience, that was probably resonating with them in a different way. So, yeah. yeah. There was a piece of research which I read a while ago about 3D films, and um, it was that when people watch a film... In two, the same film in 2D or 3D, immediately afterwards, their recollection and understanding of it is the same. Mm. But six months later, if they watched it in 3D, they remember it better. And I can only think that's just because it was different. Mm. I still think it's peculiar to watch 3D TV <laughs> at home <laughs> in your living room. <laughs> yeah. Can you do that at home? No, I can't. Oh, but I know a few years ago, that's the latest thing, wasn't yeah. it? So I did think it was interesting that um, that Steph mentioned the naming of the, the new research boat, the Sir David Attenborough, and the... Demotion. <laughs> of Boating McBaitface. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it's an, it's an interesting illustration of the challenges of, of, sort of social media science communication because um, it was a genu genuine attempt to involve the public in, in naming the boat with an outcome that was actually quite challenging to think about how you mm. could... Uh, how you could use it and very unexpected I understand from the person that proposed that name that it would actually run and yes. become viral so yeah. yeah I mean do you think they should have they were right to not call it Boating McBoatface I think it's a tough call isn't it 
I think they've come with a, a reasonable um, compromise mm. in offering the little, little research vessel being called Bodie McBuckface, but mm. recognising um, the contributions to uh, wildlife and environmental conservation that um, Sir David Attenborough has made over his lifetime yeah. of, of documentary filmmaking. I think it points back to a wider issue, though, that if you are ever setting up an engagement activity, be you a large organisation, a funder, an individual researcher and scientist, you really need to think about people's expectations mm. and what you're kind of giving them as an opportunity and how you're going to follow through on that. Um, they probably didn't have a meeting or a conversation about what to, if someone comes up with the name Boaty McBoatface. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe they wouldn't have anticipated that, but perhaps you would have thought about maybe what are the implications if the results aren't quite how we would foresee them or expect. Mm. I bet it comes up every time this these sorts of discussions happen now. Yeah, <laughs> what's the next baiting at rope face? How do you mitigate against that then? How do you stop that happening? I don't think you necessarily should. I think it would take some of the charm away from opening things up to conversation. And I think people were able to take that in quite a light-hearted way when that final decision was made I think even if people were a bit grumpy about it they probably understood why they took that approach um, I guess the danger is probably with issues that maybe have a bit more significance for people and the ramifications might be uh, more directly impactful on a particular community so for instance if you were doing something on a health-based project where you were opening up to patient and service user engagement and then really neglecting to engage with a particular message that was coming back from those communities I think you probably would need to handle it in a much more cautious manner um, and really think about the views and opinions that were being expressed rather than kind of come up with this this sort of um, solution. I hope you've enjoyed this first episode of Science Chatters we'll be back with another episode soon and if you would like to know when that is, the best thing you can do is to follow us on Twitter, the Science Communication Unit on Twitter, which is at SciComsUE. Thank you to Emma Brisdian, Dr Stephanie Sargent, Priya Payment and Annie Moyer for the interviews. And thank you to you two for joining me. Thanks, Andrew. And uh, thank you for listening. Science Chatters. Maybe we should have called this podcast you might pod cast face and then we could have done whatever we wanted <laughs> I feel like we're doing that a little bit anyway aren't we? <laughs>